0: All right, so we're going to pull back the curtain here a little bit. Here's what happened earlier um, during the, the filming. So remember when I, in the announcements, um, I was sharing those resources, those Bible resources. I thought, we're going to have some fun. We're going to do a little giveaway. And so I um, asked who didn't have an NLT study Bible and, and uh, kind of estimated how many people. And I said, okay, let's pick a number between, let's just say one and 20. And, and um, the first person I called upon <laughs> got it right and I'm like, no. And I'm just going along. And pretty soon they ran through all the numbers. And they're like, there's no numbers left. I'm like, well, no one said five. Yeah, the first person did. So, so you, if you can help me in check, if I say something that sounds completely crazy, I'm going to need your help because evidently my mind is not working well today. But hopefully God's going to work through us. Doesn't he? Sometimes he works through us when we don't feel at our best. So, so here we go. Um, hey, i want going to start with this. I, gotta, I have a couple pictures above my desk at home. And some of you have heard me talk about these these pictures before. Um, One of the pictures began as a fanboy photo. I was in my early 20s and I had a chance to meet who at the time was one of the most influential pastors in the country when it came to really trying to help people move from not knowing Jesus to being a fully devoted follower. And I was just so excited to meet him and and he was an inspiration. I'm like, I want to be like him. And the other picture that I want to reference here is a picture, it's a photo of a family friend. And he's he's one of the most naturally gifted people that I've ever met in my life. And the photo is a photo of him and his, his family. And it was taken shortly after at a very young age. He was named to be the successor of an incredible ministry that's affected thousands of lives, including my own. These photos... They once served as an inspiration. Now they serve as cautionary tales of how quickly the mighty can fall. What happened to them, it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. And here's why. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Predicting who will finish well and who won't, it's not rocket science. It's not hard to come up with examples of people, I bet if we did this, not hard to come up with examples of people that we all looked up to and whose lives came crashing down. With hindsight, if we could go back, the warning signs were probably there. In the case of my fanboy photo, when that leader stepped off the stage, he was doing things that he told us not to do. In the case of my friend, he was making choices, that didn't just put himself at risk, but put his family at risk, it put his extended family at risk, and it put the ministry that he was uniquely gifted for at risk. There are behaviors, there are attitudes that are highly predictive of our future. Can I get an amen? You can look at these attitudes, you can look at these behaviors, they are highly predictive, of what will happen in the future, like whether or not we're the same people in private that we are in public, like whether or not we consider the impact that our choices can have on other people, like whether we choose our advisors and our influencers and our inner circle really, really well, like whether we choose the posture of pride or the posture of humility, like, Whether we try to cover up our mistakes or whether we own up to them. In this brand new teaching series that begins today, we're going to learn from the mistakes of others. And here's why. I want to invite you to write this down as well. We are just one decision away from train wrecks of our own. Can I give an amen to that? It is so easy for future you to look back and say, past you. Who are you thinking? Or pass me? What is I thinking? Right? Or put the other way around, it is so easy for today you to sabotage future you. All it takes is one wrong click. All it takes is one wrong choice. Or all it takes is a series of little choices that get you further and further and further off course. And when our lives come crashing down, it almost always affects other people. Some say experience is a best teacher. Best? I, I don't know. It's true that foolish people sometimes learn from their mistakes. That, that's true. But do you know what wise people do? Wise people learn from others' mistakes. That's what wise people do. They learn from the mistakes of others. This is a teaching series for those who desire to walk the path of wisdom. For those who desire, let's learn from the past. Let's learn from our mistakes. Let's learn from the mistakes of others. I'd invite you to write this down. Here's a third thing. We can learn from the mistakes of the past or we can repeat them. Let's learn from the mistakes of the past. In this new teaching series, what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the epic section of scripture that we call 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. This is where we find the accounts of kings like Saul and Solomon. This is where we find the stories of prophets like Samuel and Elijah and Elisha. This is where we find the stories of David and Goliath. There are references in this section of scripture to palaces filled with gold, with mighty warriors who fought lions in a pit on a snowy day, with clashes, with empires like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Amidst the epic story arcs are vivid accounts of wars, assassinations, shocking scandals. There are lessons to be learned here that are as relevant today for us as they were then. And we invite you to read all of it, all of it. When we gather on Sundays, what we're going to do is we've chosen nine key teachings that are going to try to take us all the way through as best we can. We're, we're calling this our nine-track summer mixtape um, on this uh, series. We're going to call it the Chronicles of the Kings. Track one through five are going to come from First and Second Samuel. Six through eight are going to come from First and Second Kings. And then our final track is going to come from 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So, let's get started. And what we're going to get started with today is a summary. What we're going to try to accomplish here in the little time we've got is a summary of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Just to give us a big picture of how all of these books open. So, if this were a movie, if this is a movie and I had to make a pitch, where do we start our movie? How do we start our movie on 1st and 2nd Samuel? What I'd do is I would start right where the overlap is. Because this was one unified story. We just have it broken down in our English Bibles to like this. So I would start with the end of 1 Samuel into the beginning of, of 2 Samuel. And here's what happens in that little section. Imagine this. So you're watching the movie and it starts with a mighty warrior. He's coming back home with 600 of his men. He's going to a village called Ziklag, where they call their their, their home. So they're on their way back and someone yells, David, look! And they look off in the distance and there's smoke rising from their village. So they rush to the village only to find that it's been reduced to ashes and rubble by an Amalekite raiding party. And a voiceover says, and this is directly out of the scripture, we wept and we wept till there was no more strength to weep. As they desperately search, through all the rubble, all the ashes, all the charred remains, someone says, there's no bodies. Where are the bodies? And slowly it dawns on them that all of the women, all the children would have been carried off by the Amalekites, by these invaders. So they set out, we're going to find our families. And as they go out and they're, they're going along, they come across this person who's just just about dead, just about starved, no water, no food. And and so they give this person food, they give this person water, and they say, tell us, who are you? And this person was an Egyptian. And he says, I I was a slave to this group of people called the Amalekites. And and they had raided this village, this this horrible thing, and and I got sick, and they left me here to die. And he says, you want to know where they are? I'll tell you where they are. So he tells them where they are and in this, this group of, of, of men, they, they, they rush out and, and when they get to the crest of this ridge, they look down and what they see just makes their blood boil because there on the plain stretched out before him are all of these, this raiding party and they're drinking and they're celebrating and they're rejoicing over what they had just done. David and his men rush down that hill they slaughter them all, all that couldn't escape. After tearful reunions with their wives, with their children, they head for home. Now that scene goes right into this next scene. This is right out of the scriptures. The scene now shifts to a close-up of another intense battle. So imagine a really tight shot, and in this really tight shot, you can see this king, this royal figure. He is strikingly handsome. He is a head taller than all the rest, a mighty warrior. And as the camera zooms out, you begin to see the scale of this battle is massive. The scale of what we just saw in this last fight, this is, this is so much bigger. This is a war. And it's the Philistines against the Israelites. And as it zooms back, it's really clear who's winning. It's the Philistines. Suddenly, someone shouts out, King Saul, look out! And the reason he's yelling that is because now all of a sudden you see all of these Philistines drawing their bows, arrows fill the sky, and many of these arrows plunge right into King Saul. King Saul turns to his armor bearer and says, draw your sword, don't let me die by theirs. And the faithful armor bearer says, my king, I can't do that. And so they both Fall on their own swords. From there, the next scene cuts back to David and his men. Now they're back at least what used to be their home, and they're starting to rebuild. They're there with their families, and a stranger enters the village. Who are you? David says to the stranger as a stranger falls at his feet. He says, I'm from Gilboa, the site of a mighty battle. He says to David, my lord, your king and his son Jonathan, they've fallen. David says, how do I know this is true? And the stranger replies, by chance, I happened to be there at the site of this battle. King Saul was mortally wounded. He cried out to me. He said, you, Amalekite, I'm in anguish. I ask you, take my life. And I did as he said. This this Amalekite, he he brings the royal diadem, he holds it up in this this armlet, armlet and he says, I brought these to you because you are the rightful king of Israel. Then we get a flashback and we see this Amalekite, he's lying, this is all a deception. He's a scavenger and in that flashback, we see that somehow he got to King Saul's body before the rest of the army got there and he took these items Knowing, at least thinking, that David is going to be the next king. And if I can get in with David, what could that mean for my life? Well, instead of being richly rewarded, David says, Who did you say you were again? The guy says, I'm an Amalekite. And David turns to this person and says, how could you strike the Lord's anointed? You're gonna join him right now. And he had this Amalekite killed right there. This is the kind of content that we find in these books. And here's what comes after, right after that. This is out of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open up to 2 Samuel. This comes right after these scenes that I just described. You can find all of them there in the closing chapter of 1 Samuel coming into 2 Samuel. Here's, and I wanna let you know too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to go to Bible.com, download their Bible app. It's really, really good and it's free. All right, here we go. 2 Samuel uh, chapter one, let's start with verses 17 through 19. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. If I had to pick one phrase to summarize First and Second Samuel, That would be it, how the mighty have fallen. All right, let's go on to verse 20. Verse 20 says, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of those uncircumcised exalt. Just a few short days earlier, what did David come across? He come across an enemy who was rejoicing, exalting over destroying this Israelite village. And so what he says is, let there be no rejoicing over what happened on the battlefield. Don't give our enemies any reason to rejoice. All right, let's go. Verse 21, he continues in this lament. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fields of offerings for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. David calls curses on the very ground. Gilboa is where that battle took place. David calls curses on the ground. He's saying, may you be desolate forever. May this dead ground serve as a lasting memorial to what happened there. Moving on to verse 22, now this one's hard to translate into English. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, from the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned out empty. That sounds like national treasure kind of stuff. There. The um, what Again, hard to translate what might be going on here, those bl- references to blood and fat, could be sacrificial imagery. It could be saying... It's as if when Jonathan and Saul are slaying their enemies, that's almost like an offering to God. That might be one translation here. All right, verses 23 and 24 say this. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. They had it all. They had it all. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, able to provide the finest things for their people. Verses 25 through 26, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love for me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. That was really interesting as I was studying this passage, almost every scholar pause to say, this doesn't translate well into English either, especially into our culture. Because when we think of that kind of love, we can only think of romantic love a lot of times in our culture. They said, that's not what's going on here. Our culture is such a hard time, doesn't it, understanding how deep the bonds of friendship can go. We're starting to lose track of that. After his battle with Goliath, the word says, Jonathan, quote, became one in spirit with David. said that he loved David more than he loved himself. The Greek and Hebrew language, they have different words and phrases to express different kinds of love. The love that David and Jonathan shared, it's not the kind of physical intimacy that's reserved for marriage in the scriptures. It is a love based on a deep, deep respect and loyalty and brotherhood. In fact, on several occasions, Jonathan risked everything risked everything for his friend. And in 1 Samuel 23, 16, we read, Jonathan, quote, helped David find his strength in God. Don't we all wish we had friends like that? What a beautiful imagery for friendship. All right, David offers tribute to his fallen friend with this final stanza, verse 27. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. So, if this were the beginning of a movie, or the start of a teaching series, that's how I'd open this. Because this is the kind of content we find in 1st and 2nd Samuel. The only other thing I would add to my opening would be this. I would put these words on the screen 50 years earlier. Because that's where 1st Samuel starts about 50 years earlier, and we get the backstory leading up to this, and then we get the epilogue of what comes after. There are two epic story arcs. One primarily goes through 1 Samuel, the other goes primarily through 2 Samuel. You've got the rise and fall of King Saul in 1 Samuel. You've got the rise and fall of King David in 2 Samuel. By the way, the Bribelproject.com does a great job of illustrating those two arcs. Well, Saul's star- story arc. Oh, Saul. He begins with so much promise. So much promise. Coming out of the chaos of the book of Judges, there's a miraculous birth. And that child grows up to be the mighty prophet named Samuel. Jason's going to be taking on Samuel. It's, it's, there's so much great stuff there. The people cry out for a king to lead them. And Samuel anoints a man named Saul. Saul looks the part. He's handsome. He's a full head taller than anyone else. And Saul begins with the support of Samuel, the support of the people, and even God himself. But pride, pride gets the best of him. He begins to make compromises. He appears incapable of owning up to mistakes. Proud Saul, brought low. And as Saul's ark begins its decline, a little boy named David is an ark that starts to grow. As Saul descends into jealousy and madness, madness, that's so crazy. Saul even attempts to kill David. We see this other story arc rise. But then, after Saul's death, David begins to have struggles of his own, leading to adultery, murder, the death of several of his children and others who are close to him. There's even a season, we're going to look at this one, there's even a season later in the series where David has to flee for his life from his own son, one of his own sons. Well, this summer, we invite you to come on this extended journey with us. We're going to do nine weeks. Nine weeks isn't enough. We could do 90 weeks, it wouldn't be enough. There are lessons to be learned here that are as relevant today as they have been then. Here's just a few, we're gonna give you just a few of the big themes in these books. If you're taking notes at home, you're gonna to need to hit pause on, on this because we're gonna be firing these at you. So, You won't be able to write them all down. If you want afterwards, those who are here, you can come up and look at them because there's just so many big themes. But capture how big each one of these is. These are themes that are embedded throughout this this account. Themes like this. What the Lord says about kings and empires came to pass. What the Lord says about people comes to pass. Humility and inquiring of the Lord are predictive of rising and falling. Aren't they? You do those two things. Good chance you're gonna rise. You don't. Good chance you're gonna fall. Wholeheartedness and courageous integrity are predictive of rising and falling. Here comes some more. Our choice to cover up mistakes or own up to them is predictive of rising and falling. Small compromises can have big consequences. And this one, God is at work in the midst of human brokenness. We're gonna have more than this that's gonna come our way over the course of the series. These are some that repeat themselves over and over and over again. And are any of these themes still relevant today? Which one? (laughs) All of them. The Old Testament, we need to remember this, everybody. The Old Testament is a gift. It is a gift to those who will receive it. It's a gift. In the weeks ahead, let's learn from those who chose the path of humility and wholeheartedness, let's also learn from those who didn't. Because Can you can imagine, can you imagine a community that doesn't stay stupid? Wouldn't that be great to be a part of a group that doesn't stay stupid, but that learns and we build on the past as a people. We learn and build on that. Wouldn't it be great? That we apply lessons learned from the past to our now and we experience the blessings of walking in wisdom. Think how we'd stand out. We're a culture that just stays stuck at stupid, aren't we? Man, we repeat the mistakes of the past over and over and over again. As we launch this series, I'm going to offer a challenge here and some good news. We'll do this really quick. A challenge, then good news. Here's the challenge. There's a place to write this down. There's only room on the throne for one king. There's only room for one. So choose wisely. David's life it was filled with ups and downs, but in his best moments, that's what he's wholehearted. Wholehearted towards God. Here's a sampling of David's perspective. Look at this. Some selections from 2 Samuel. Just, this is just one chapter. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. To the faithful God, you show yourself faithful. The Lord turns darkness into light. This was, on his best moments, this was his perspective. Could you or anyone else that you know use more of this perspective? Yeah. Throughout these remarkable books, we're going to see what happens when people try to put themselves or some other god on the throne, or when they consciously or unconsciously pledge their allegiance to lesser kings, or when they try to serve God and—that one really gets you into trouble. I want to serve God and? God and someone or something else. In this series, we're going to challenge one another to pursue the God of the Scriptures with our whole hearts, our whole hearts. So that's the challenge. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ made a way for rebels like you and me to approach the throne of grace with confidence. One of the things you're going to see in First and Second Samuel, everybody falls. Everybody falls. David falls, Samuel falls, Saul falls. If we only had the Old Testament, that wouldn't be good news the Old Testament reveals at least two things. It reveals, one, that we've got a good king who merits wholehearted devotion. And, two, none of us consistently hit that standard. So where does that leave us, right? So the good news is this. We find in the New Testament, in the fullness of time, This good king sent his one and only son. Not only to demonstrate what complete obedience looks like, but to somehow, through his life, his death, his resurrection, made it possible for our sins to be forgiven, for our status before God to be a clean state, and for us to be adopted into God's family, The Christian faith ultimately is not about obtaining some status in God's eyes by what we do. It's about receiving what's already been done on our behalf. The Word of God says, to all who received him, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. (sighs) So have you ever done that? Have you ever received him? Received him as your Lord, received him as your savior. To receive him as Lord is to say, I'm all yours, holding nothing back, wholehearted. It's not you and it's you. Whatever you say, I'll do. Wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. That's Lord. Savior is to say, I just made that promise and I'm not able to keep it. I need a savior. Scripture says it's by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves that we may boast. What a beautiful thing that we have a God who says, come to me just as you are. Hold nothing back, but I'm not going to hold it against you when you fall, as long as you keep moving forward because of what was done on your behalf. We want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ right here, right now. One of the ways you can do that, we're gonna sing a song. It's new to this church family. And look at these words. If you pray this song, pray this song, you can receive this gift. Here, right here, is where I lay it down. Every burden, every crown, this is my surrender. This is my surrender. Here's where I lay it down, every lie, every doubt, this is my surrender. As we sing that song, you'll also have the opportunity to join us in a sacrament called Holy Communion. If you're new to Emmanuel, when we commemorate communion, we commemorate this real event. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there's so much the Bible does not say about well, communion. It doesn't give a specific age, it doesn't give a specific method, it doesn't prescribe a specific type of juice or wine. here's what the scripture does say, and it comes back to that wholehearted peace. Let a person examine themselves which is one of the reasons we we lead one another through this this prayer. These aren't magic words. Make them your own. The reason we say them together is because it's not just you. It's all of us. We all need to pray these things. And Emmanuel, the only one that will keep you from the Lord's table is you. If you can sincerely pray the prayers that we're going to pray together, if you can sincerely sing that song that we're about to sing, we invite you to join us. Here in this room, And on Sundays at the community center, we don't have ushers. Instead, we want this to be a deliberate decision on our part to say, I come to you as Lord. I come to you as Savior. So at home, during this time, we invite you to take your bread, take your juice. And as you do, remember those are his body and his blood are shed for you. So let's prepare ourselves for this moment right now. I invite you to pray with us. I invite you to do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We're not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Lord, as we was praying those prayers, thank you for putting this in my mind that, that prayer takes, or pride, pride takes a lot of different forms. And one of the forms that it takes is to say, I'm not good enough to come to you. That's prideful because we never will be good enough to come to you. You're the author of creation. You spoke and galaxies were formed. And you so loved this world that you gave your one and only son for us. Thank you for that gift. We pray, Lord, that you'd open our minds and our hearts to see how that demonstrates your love, to be drawn towards you and to fully surrender. Lord, before we sing that song, we also join our voices now in this prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.